if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. I'm about to do something that feels super risky to me. I hope it doesn't blow up in my face. In the last episode, Corey and I launched a new periodic feature called Book Club. You can go back and listen to episode 30 where we talked about what makes a story or a novel Catholic and how we were going to approach discussing Catholic novels in our book club segments on the podcast. Here's the risky part. For the first installment, we're going to talk about the novels of J.R.R. Tolkien, particularly The Lord of the Rings. Why is that risky? Because these books are somewhat polarizing. People either love them or they hate them. There's really no middle ground. And I figure that at least half of our listeners have either never read them or tried and dropped them after 100 pages because they just couldn't get into them. You know who you are. I know who you are. And I know that you listen to the Considering Catholicism podcast to learn about Catholic doctrine, history, art, apologetics, whatever. Am I right? So, I figure that right out of the gate, at least half of you won't bother to listen to this episode. But, I hope that you'll stick with it. Because some people consider these the greatest Catholic novels of the 20th century. And for a lot of converts to Catholicism, these books were sort of a gateway into the Catholic worldview. I know that's what they were for Corey and I. So, because The Lord of the Rings to some degree launched us onto our roads to Rome, we decided to make that trilogy the subject of our first book club discussion. If you want to know why, listen and we'll tell you. Shh! It's time for book club. Okay, Corey, welcome back to, uh, welcome to, well, not back to, uh, the basically the first book we're going to talk about for book club. Yeah. Um, we did do, if you have not listened to it, if you go to the podcast and listen to the book club introduction, um, there's a, an episode called book club or welcome to book club. And, uh, and it, it, um, basically talk a little bit about what makes a novel, a Catholic novel mm -hmm. and what doesn't and sort of our sort of theory and approach to Catholic literature. Uh, so you might want to listen to that first as a sort of a precursor to our conversation, but this is going to be the first episode that we actually dive into and uh, discuss a book. And we're going to discuss uh, actually several books. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> more which of is, an author, really. Yeah, yeah more yeah. of an author or a corpus or a, a, a body of books, which are the uh, fiction novels of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, so those would be explicitly, you know, The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, Silmarillion, and a couple of other. Yeah, there are other shorter works that are definitely yeah. worth looking at too. But. but I think primarily today, I think we're you know our comments are going to be around the Lord of the Rings and maybe a little bit of similar. Yeah. yeah, and and taking the Lord of the Rings as the center makes sense. It's his best known work. It's it's a long novel um, that people are familiar with. Of course, there were the films uh, not too long ago that have right. been very popular. So it's it's out there now. To answer a question that I know a lot of people who are listening to this are asking is, why are you talking about Lord of the Rings on Catholic Book Club? Mm -hmm. Because it's not a Catholic book, right? I mean, the, the it's full of like hobbits with furry feet and it's got dragons and swords and, and you know, castles and magic rings. And there's nothing, yeah. there's no churches, no priests, no, no Jesus, no nothing. So in one sense, it doesn't appear to be Catholic at all. Well, and they're actually Catholic counter narratives about this, you get people who are Tolkien fans who argue that it's pagan in some way, um, which we'll talk about why that, that isn't, um, a, at least not a complete, but definitely not an accurate statement. But yeah, you have, you have people who, who don't think about what the religious underpinnings of it at all, or you have other people who are actively making other arguments about it. Yeah. And in fact, I think for a lot of people who 
I've been only been exposed to it sort of like maybe through the movies mm-hmm. or maybe now they didn't even watch the movie, but they have people have watched it as like a sort of popular culture. Sure. It's sort of a weird, like, you know, Game of Thrones kind of weird medieval thing with swords and they just don't mm-hmm. get it. And it looks weird and unappealing to them. And so they're sitting here wondering why we're even talking about this as the first book of book club. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you the question, uh, is Lord of the Rings and someone and so forth, is it a Catholic novel? And if so, why? Yes, um, in short. Um, so the, the place to start would be what Tolkien himself said about it, um, which implies need for a little background on, on him. Uh, he grew up as as a Catholic from later in childhood, I think when he was 11 or 12, um, his, his mother converted, but he was actually raised, um, by, uh, oratorian priests after his mother died and his, his father had died earlier. Um, so he, he was a lifelong, very devout Catholic. Um, it informed, um, everything that he did from his scholarship and his work to his, his family life and to the writing that he did, um, consistently throughout his whole life, um, building up this kind of body of, of stories and legends that the Lord of the Rings is, is one of. Um, and when asked about this during his own life in letters, he, he once said, and I'll paraphrase because I don't have the quote in front of me, that it, that the Lord of the Rings was a fundamentally Catholic novel, a fundamentally Christian and Catholic novel. Um, and he thought that it was, it was so fundamentally such that he, he, he said that it, on, on his first draft, it, or as he was writing it at first, it was explicitly so. And then he started taking out reference, explicit references to things like worship or, or cult used in the, the technical sense of, you know, religious practice. Um, and, and allowing that to be implicit for it to be the, the theological and philosophical underpinnings of the thing. He, he firmly believed that it was deeply foundational to it. Um, but not in the way, as you said, of portraying a world, um, sort of the, our modern world where you have, um, you know, the church, um, because he was writing in a, he would use the term sub-created universe, this, um, place that was essentially pre-Christian, um, even pre-Jewish and it really, um, a place before the revelation that, that is Christianity. Um, and so his characters can't be explicitly Catholics, um, but the universe that they're operating in is essentially the universe created by the, by God, um, by the God that we know through Christianity. Um, and we can talk about what that means and the implications of it um, as we go. But that that's how he himself saw the, the work. You know, uh, <clears throat> in all art, one of the things that becomes an issue is uh, the artist and the artist's intentions mm-hmm. and the artist's orientation. So when we look at, say, other arts, music, painting, whatever, and, and, and those can be different, especially, if, say, for example, if you look at classical music, you don't have, you know, the word, you know, the written word. So, so the question is, you know, is the mu- music of <clears throat> Mozart or Bach or this or that composer, is it, is it Catholic you know, we're not mm-hmm. Catholic. Um, can music and can sculpture and, and, and painting. And, and again, you know, in those debates, we often talk about that the author's own faith or worldview in some sense gets conveyed through the work, often in subtle ways, and implied ways. And so what I hear you saying is one of the first answers to the question of whether the Lord of the Rings, um, I'm just going to refer to it as that, yeah, we whether the Lord of the Rings is, is, is a Catholic story is that it was written by a Catholic who intended it to, in some sense, be understood yeah. as, as a Catholic story. Yeah, I think authorial intent is a big part of the story. It's, it's not the only part, like, and especially in some of the novels I know that we intend to, to mm-hmm. talk about later, um, it, it's certainly possible that someone who is is not Catholic or, or even at, at, in a more extreme case, not Christian, that they can, they can write and, and truths can be portrayed in their work, either explicitly or implicitly, that are, um, you know, all, all truth is God's truth. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, so th- there is an 
there's an extent to which we can't just limit ourselves to authorial intent, that it's important but not comprehensive, but we would be at, in peril if we ignored it, especially right. if the author explicitly makes it yeah. known. Well, it's, it's one ingredient. It's, yeah. a, it's a necessary but insufficient condition, mm -hmm. you know. Well, let's talk about another um, condition or another ingredient, <clears throat> and... Uh, and that is how is it's how it's received, mm -hmm. and, and I want to explore this for a minute before we get into the specific story and the elements sure, of the story sure. that make it Catholic. But and, and this is an interesting conversation. There's a reason why you and I chose this as the first mm -hmm. story for book club, and that is how much our own personal lives. I mean, how much yeah. we were personally our own. Uh, in our own sort of life journey, if that's mm -hmm. a thing or whatever, mm -hmm. um, were influenced by Tolkien. And, um, you know, in, in many ways, uh, I would say that uh, Tolkien is a catalyst that set me on a road to Rome, yeah. uh, to becoming yeah. Catholic. And and I, th I think that's partly for you too. Yes. And it's it's interesting because I, I don't remember who said it, but somebody said that there's a sort of category of converts to Catholicism out there or, who are people who started off by reading Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and then they read Chesterton and then they became Catholic. Right, yeah. Or And, and so, you know, or they started reading Tolkien and then they went to Lewis and then they went to Chesterton and then they became Catholic. And that, I think that was both of our stories. Yes. I mean, we are that, yeah. we are those guys. Um, and so when I read that quote, I was like, oh my gosh. It's, <laughs> it's me. You know, it's me. Somebody's <laughs> pegged us. But there is a category of it. And there's too many of us for it to be ignored. I mean, right. it's not, it's not an accident or a no, coincidence. it's not a weird phenomenon. There's mm -hmm. a lot of people, a lot of people, especially a lot of converts to Catholicism who, if you listen to their story, their conversion story will say, they'll mention Tolkien and mm -hmm. they'll mention the Lord of the Rings and go, you know, I read this when I was young and it so profoundly influenced my life that I was in a sense restless uh, until I found Catholicism because mm -hmm. Catholicism was the thing that sort of, you know, kind of made sense out of the feelings that this produced in me when I was young. Mm -hmm. um, so talk about that a little bit about that conversion journey. I mean, without getting too much into your own story, but just that, that whole process for, for a lot of people and, yeah. and maybe why Tolkien or how Tolkien influences people's journey to Catholicism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would I would look at it and see some of the themes that are present in The Lord of the Rings, especially as implicitly Catholic and, and the kind of thing that if you're already a Christian that resonate with you deeply and that draw you closer into the Catholic church or, or have the potential to do so if you're not there already, or even if you're not Christian, um, that, that tend in that direction. Um, I think a lot about the, the themes of divine providence, um, in the Lord of the Rings where, um, there, there's a clear sense that certain things are meant to have happened, um, and that there's agency behind events and not, and not, um, fate that, um, you know, you, you don't have free will or you can't, um, affect the outcomes of the past, but, um, a very, um, providential and, and vocational understanding of providence where, where characters are, are called to accomplish a task to sort of do, um, what must be done in their time, um, which, which lends, um, a sense of, of meaning and narrative to the universe, that is a deeply Christian thing. And, and I think that it's, it's something that's really lacking in a contemporary secular understanding mm -hmm. and in contemporary secular novels. Um, and if you read that and that resonates with you and you find that very stirring and inspiring um, and that is something that helps you um, understand your own life and the direction of your own life better... Um, I think that is very much a gateway into a Christian and into a Catholic understanding of of what our lives are about and and what um, you know the life of the world is about and and how God is is guiding and directing things. Yeah, I, I, I totally affirm that. I think I think you nailed it. I, I would add to mm -hmm. that, or maybe um, you know, parallel to that, or on top of that, sure. or something. I don't know underneath it. Here's what I would put it. So I read. Uh, Tolkien when I was very young. Um, I was a, I was a bookish child. And so, I mean, I think I read it when I was like in sixth grade or something like that, you know? So, um, 
And I didn't have the vocabulary to really understand what I was reading. Mm-hmm. I just knew that it profoundly affected me and it, and it affected me. At a, at a, at a, I mean, profoundly, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, profoundly, profoundly. Um, and I, and, I, and I, I couldn't, if you had, you know, pulled me aside when I was 13 or 15 or 25, I'm not sure I could tell you why, mm-hmm. just that it profoundly affected me. But what it did, I think, is it planted into me um, three characters, and I didn't know who these characters were. Um, but they they're so they're so developed in the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion that they really are almost characters, and that's truth and goodness and beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, running all through it is this notion of truth, right? I mean, you could read the Lord of the Rings and a commentary uh, on it and go, look, it, it really is about truth and untruth. Like, and, you know, it, that becomes, becomes like plot points in there about the truth and the untruth. And so, you know, we can get into the story and the plot points, but right. I mean, um, truth is one of the major themes or stakes or issues in it. Um, I mean, even the ring of power leads to lies and mm-hmm. distortion, right? And then the other one is goodness. I mean, you talked about, you know, characters working together for a goal, but there's this profound sense of goodness. And so you can look in characters in there and that goodness is sort of a transcendent goodness. And, you know, you talk about um, some of the characters, you talk about, you know, the Lady Galadriel or whatever, it, you know, imbues, you know, it, it, there's a goodness in this. Mm-hmm. And then, right, the great line, you know, where, where Sam says to Frodo, there's, you know, there's goodness in the world. Yeah, well, and that contrasted with a very clear portrayal of evil as well. Right, Just yeah. as you said, truth and lies, but there's also a, a very clear portrayal of, 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 of evil. the opposite. Right, and so goodness is almost a character, and then beauty. Mm-hmm. Everything in, in it is just imbued with beauty, the beauty of nature, the beauty of the world, and then distortion. You know, the ring of power distorts things. It makes things ugly. Orcs are ugly. Elves are beautiful, right? I mean, and, and so, you know, what it did is it made me hungry for these things, and I didn't really have words for them. And it was when I was much older, and I began to encounter Catholicism, and I began to encounter these concepts of the transcendentals, which kind of in some ways predate Catholicism back to, you know, Plato and sure, whatnot. Sure, sure, but, but it's adopted by... The church. Right. Yeah. And, but these, these concepts of the transcendentals of truth and goodness and beauty, and, you know, we can go into a whole discussion about those in Catholicism, but all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, this is what it was, is that it was all about truth and goodness and beauty. And then the church articulates that and makes sense of it and kind of connects all the dots. And that for me was like this epiphany of like, yes, this is Catholicism. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, another theme uh, that I know I've heard you talk about before that's very present in The Lord of the Rings and that I think is a magnet kind of drawing you towards the Catholic worldview is, is what we might call sacramentality. Yes. Um, is that in The Lord of the Rings, as in the Catholic view of reality, um, physical things point beyond themselves. Um, they, they have a, a marker or a, or a signpost kind of function and, and they point to things that are transcendent, to truth, to goodness, to beauty. Um, they, they are not mere stuff that has no significance in, right. in a materialist um, sense. Um, and, and that's how the church... Um, not just in the sacraments, the seven sacraments, but how we understand the world in general. Yeah. Um, and you see that in play in Tolkien's work. Uh, absolutely. In fact, in, in some sense, I would even kind of shove my chips further into the table on this deal sure. and say that the thing is, is that what I encountered in The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion and all that was a, what I would call a sacramental universe. In mm-hmm. other words, the story inhabits, um, you know, when you talk about world building, inhabits a sacramental universe. And the way I would kind of define that, you talked about um, markers that point to transcendent. I would actually, again, kind of double down on that and say that, that in a sacramental universe, physical objects have eternal significance. It's not just they point to, Mm -hmm. to eternal or transcendent truths or realities. They, they, in a sense, in, um, incarnate them. Sure, that that they are, are almost like windows through which they 
Yeah, they, right. They so come just as, as as we talk about the sacraments and when we talk about water and bread and wine and 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 hands and oil and all these things become eternal, you know, have have transcendent significance and eternal spiritual significance. The same way, in a sacramental universe of Tolkien, simple things: a, a hill, a cup, a sword, a, you know, a ring. All of these things have transcendent and eternal significance. They they um, they are points of connection between the transcendent supernatural world, the eternal world, and and the physical world that we inhabit, and. And, you know, somebody, I, I was, you and I were talking about this the other day, and I can't remember. It's going to be the tip of my tongue as soon as I stop the recording, I'll remember. Uh, but uh, it was the historian you talked about um, how after the Middle Ages, what modernity brought, a sort of disenchanting yes. of, of, mm-hmm. of the universe. So, in other words, up until uh, the Enlightenment, um, people inhabited the, the notion of an enchanted universe. And by that, he meant what I would say sacramental. In other words, the things around us have eternal transcendent significance. Right. And it's, I mean, you go back to, to the scriptures where the heavens right. declare the glory of God or, or, exactly. or St. Paul talking about how um, we we can discern the attributes of God through his right. creation. Yeah. And I mean, we've talked about this before in other contexts, but, um, you know, in Catholicism, right, if you go back to um, the Old Testament and New Testament, um, God often works through things, Right. So, um, you know, Aaron has a staff. Right. Um, there's a bush that burns in order for God to appear. There's when Jesus wants to, to uh, fix the eyes of a blind man, he spits in the dirt and yeah. rubs it. Well, well, all of this is is outflowing from the incarnation because that's right. that Jesus is God who became man, right. a person with body and right. who can be touched and talked to and seen. Yeah. And when both of us converted away from evil evangelicalism in which physical things don't have that significance. That's a wrap on Catholicism. Well, Catholics have, you know, all these weird sacraments and magic, you know, things and gestures and, you know, all this, and God doesn't need to do that. You go, but that is how God works. God often works through things. He incarnates, he uses, I love the line in C.S. Lewis. He said, right. Uh, right, God, God likes matter. He invented it. <laughs> right. um, and so God works, God loves the material universe and he works the material, material universe. And in a sense, the material universe is, is, is sacramental at a fundamental level. And what you encounter in Tolkien is this sacramental universe where everything, things matter. Mm-hmm. Things matter not just in the immediate, uh, not just in the, the, the proximate, not just for today, uh, not just in the material sense, but material things matter eternally. And, and that was so stirring to me as a, you know, 10, 12, 13-year-old kid reading this. I didn't have the words for it. Uh, where I was at when I was that age and the school system I was raised in and the decade I was raised in was a different decade than (laughs) you. But, you know, at that time, I mean, it was a very, I I, I grew up in a very, you know, materialist um, kind of school system um, imbued with a lot of modernist and even kind of postmodernist ideas and everything else. And so as a kid reading that, I was like, this is just encountering something that's unlike anything that I'm being exposed to. Mm -hmm. It just was unlike it. And, you know, a a point of resonance with that is how people resonate with the works of totally, this seems, I mean, random, I know, but it's the resonance that people have with the works of Vincent van Gogh. Okay. So, right. So look at how many people have Starry, Starry Night as a poster on their walls, right? Mm -hmm. And how many people love the Starry Night. Right by Van Gogh, um, and you know there's displays. I mean, I've 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 seen the real thing. You know, you go to the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, and you go to the Van Gogh room, and you see Starry Night, and you see all these things. But people resonate. Even people who are not Catholics, not Christians, whatever. They profoundly resonate with these paintings of Van Gogh, where the stars are exploding, mm-hmm. right? And there's this town, and it's underneath these exploding stars, which are almost like nebulas and galaxies. And it's like the night is alive, and the world is alive, and the universe is alive. And that resonates so deeply, because I think that we live in this materialist, sort of sad materialist worldview in our society. Mm-hmm. And it, and it, there's a dissonance. We're dissatisfied with it because it's not real. 
Like, I think we're built as humans to, 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 to recognize that we do live in a different kind of universe and that the sort of sadly deconstructed materialist worldview doesn't satisfy this hunger in our heart. Right. We have a hyper focus on the material dimensions of things, the, the, the dimension of reality that you can uh, describe through the scientific method. And that's, that's good and that's valid, but it's, it's a, a part of the whole. Right. Um, and it's not the entirety. And, it, and if you are um, missing the spiritual dimension, the sacramental dimension of things, I, I do think it, it creates a, um, a, a, a gap and a, and a hunger and a longing. And ultimately, of course, that's, that's for God. So both of us came to Catholicism um, and we started with Lord of the Rings and we moved through these journey and we end up like so many people do in yeah. the Catholic church. Well, well for me, cause I, I read it when I was in middle school um, and I didn't convert to, to the Catholic church until I was an adult, but I, I grew up as a Christian. And I don't think when I read The Lord of the Rings the first time, I really had that much of an understanding of, of the Christian underpinnings of it or, or why it was relevant. I, I really enjoyed it and thought it was interesting. Um, and I probably had some low-level awareness of it. But as I grew in my faith, and especially as I was investigating the Catholic Church, things in The Lord of the Rings became more and more significant to me. And, and I think I... I came to understand them much better. Um, things uh, like, um, you, you mentioned Galadriel earlier, and in, in, in Tol Tolkien's wider body of work, you have other figures um, like Elbereth, who are, who are mm -hmm. clearly um, inspired by his devotion to Our Lady. Mm -hmm. um, and that wouldn't have made sense to me as a Protestant, but as I came to, to know more about our Lady right. and about Catholic devotion to Mary, um, the way that he was portraying these characters started to make sense to me. Or um, there's uh, the Lemba spread yep. um, that, that right. the elves um, give uh, to the fellowship uh, for their journey. And if you eat it once a day, right. it sustains you. It's, it's a, like, it give uh, us this how, day our daily bread. How, right. how much more obvious right. can It's bread for the journey. It's viaticum, right. which yeah. is what the church calls the Eucharist when, it, when it's given on, on the deathbed. And the super substantial. Um, bread that clearly is depicting um, some small part of Tolkien's um, understanding of the Eucharist. Not that these things are are allegorical, but they're they're applicable. They have resonance with these these specifically Catholic ways of of knowing God and of and of worshiping Him and of interacting with the saints and with the universe. That um, as as I came closer to the church, I'm like, oh, this thing that I already loved. I love it all the more and I, I'm understanding it better and it's mutually reinforcing um, my, my engagement with the church and with what the church is teaching. Right. I mean, so I was raised in a secular environment. I didn't become a Christian until I was uh, in my 20s. Uh, and, I, and then I became a sort of an evangelical Protestant and eventually, you know, 20 mm. something years later ended up in the Catholic church. But but when I read that as a kid, I, again, I didn't even have the framework of reference of evangelical Christianity or Protestant. I just mm -hmm. was in an utterly secular sort of um, space. And and yet, it, 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 like, like I said, it sort of created in me, like it, I knew I loved this. I didn't mm -hmm. know why I loved it. Right, I right. just knew I loved it and it, and it planted in me feelings like it, it's almost like you tasted something good and you spend the rest of your life trying to find that thing again. Right, um, like a drug or a food or something that was, that was just like I had this craving for that. And then what that did is it set me down this road where I began really studying literature, you know, seriously. Um, and so I began devouring what I thought would be like, if I like this, then what other kinds of literature can I read? And so not only did I read other kinds of like, you know, fantasy science fiction stuff, but I tried to go back to sources. So I get into college and everything else. I mean, I, I spent an entire semester, graduate semester, um, studying nothing but um, uh, Wagner's uh, Ring of the Nibelung series. Oh, okay. um, I, I read everything I could read, you know, um, uh, I read, you know, Norse mythology. I read Greek literature. I mean, I went from Tolkien to reading, uh, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey six months mm -hmm. later because I had a teacher who said, well, if you like this, you might like this. But the thing is, as I cycled through all this, I couldn't find anything else that sort of um, scratched that itch. Mm -hmm. 
And again, I didn't have a word for it. You know, I didn't know why, I, it, 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 but there was something about that, things that we mentioned earlier, the, you know, the, the, the journey, the, que- the quest aspects of it, the heroic aspects of it, um, the truth, the goodness, and the beauty, the sacrament of the universe, all of those things, you know. And I had a friend when I was converting to Catholicism, when I was very near the, the, the final step of joining the church, somebody I've known for quite a long time. It's like, why are you doing this wacky thing and becoming like, you know, a wacky, um, you know, papist and everything else, right? Falling for popery. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I was like, well, here's the deal. I said my whole life, like, it's almost like everything that I ever liked and loved, I began to follow them up like uh, to their source. Right. It's almost like you you're on a mountain at the base in a valley or something and you go, oh, here's this creek or this stream or this lake and now let me follow it up and you keep following the whatever, what's a bigger, a creek or a stream, but you follow the right. stream until it becomes a creek and then until it becomes a trickle and you follow it up and, and everything kind of converged and I realized that everything that I ever really, really loved, you know, that that seemed, you know, it all kind of like the source, it all led back to this spring of Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And when I realized that, everything I ever, I ever thought was good or beautiful or true or wonderful or everything else in our culture or civilization or in life somehow had its its root and its spring in, in Catholicism. That was like, how can I not go there. Yeah. And, and, and for me, the Lord of the Rings was like that because I didn't have a religious context for it. I mean, I wasn't religious. I was raised Mm -hmm. in a secular home. So it was like, I I don't know what this is. I just know I want, I want more of this. And I, and it's like that line from Augustine where like my heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. It was like my, I was restless until I figured out what it is about Tolkien, what inspired me, my, you know, 11, 12, 13 year old mind, what inspired that? What, where do I find this? Mm -hmm. And, and then, you know, you come into Catholicism and you come into the Catholic worldview and Catholic faith and doctrine and it all snaps together. All things you mentioned, authorial intent, all of the pieces, all of a sudden, you know, the limbus bread, the this or that, oh, it all makes sense now. Mm -hmm. It's almost like now I have the decryption key to understand why this was so appealing to me. And I think that this is that journey that so many converts have made. And, you know, there's, there's stops along the way, C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton and all these things. Corey, for those who are listening who still are not grasping why we think this is great, mm-hmm. what distinguishes it from, say, other literature in its genre? So there's a gazillion sort of sword and sorcery sure. books out there, mm-hmm. right? And for a lot of people today, you know, there's Game of Thrones or, you know, you, you, your generation grew up reading Harry Potter. What makes Tolkien different than that? Sure. I mean, I think we have to distinguish uh, or make a distinction about the, the aesthetic or the genre that, um, that really thrived uh, in the wake of Tolkien. Um, he wasn't the first person to write a fantasy novel, but, but he really popularized the form and in a lot of ways, it became an aesthetic or a set of tropes. Um, you know, you, you have um, things like the inclusion of, of elves or dwarves or other, other um, non-human uh, peoples. Um, you have the, the, the trope of the quest or all of these things, um, which, I mean, I'm into all that. I, I like those things. Um, but that's not what makes the Lord of the Rings the Lord of the Rings. I mean, he he certainly has those things in there, and and he is drawing pretty heavily on mythology um, and uh, and legend, especially Norse, but but other things as well. Um, but what he's writing is is something that's fundamentally flowing out of his worldview. Um, and so if, if we want to put Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings in the same category as something like Game of Thrones or other, um, fantasy or sword and sorcery things, um, I, I think the kinship between them is more superficial or more surface level. Um, if you get down to the, the theological and, and philosophical underpinning, sort of the heart of the work, I think that's where they diverge pretty heavily, um, Tolkien, as as we've been saying, he, he, he's coming from his Catholic faith, from 
he's even, um, as he's appropriating things like North mythology, it's, it's through that lens and through that filter. Um, and other, other writers in the genre, um, to greater and lesser degrees are, are not doing that or doing it through other worldviews and other filters. Um, I, I haven't, uh, read Game of Thrones, but my, my understanding, what I've, what I've heard and read from others is that it's coming from a almost Nietzschean or power-based, yeah. um, uh, philosophical, uh, yeah, thread. It, it's exactly that, right? So it's, it's like you were talking about, say a Western, like, you know, things can be set in the wild, wild West and they have like, you know, cowboys and horses and, you know, 10 gallon hats, but they can be completely different stories. Right. Or, or you can set your story in space and it can be Star Trek or it can be Star Wars. Or it can be some really heady science, hard science right. fiction novel. So, They're all very different. So they all have like a lot of swords or whatever, but see Game of Thrones is interesting because I, I like the way, you know, you put it. Um, I, I, I would say that the, in the universe in which the Game of Thrones story is set is a chaotic universe. Sure. Um, and not a universe of order and natural law, but a universe of chaos. And there's nothing true or good or beautiful in that, that universe or in those stories. I mean, I mean, there's no real truth. Everything is subjective and, and there's nothing, there's no real goodness. In fact, it's sort of the plot point or the ethos of, of Game of Thrones is that there is no real goodness. Everybody's compromised and there's nothing really beautiful. Anything that, you know, appears beautiful in one aspect is ugly in another. And so it, it is this kind of compromised moral universe. Yeah. And I don't know, when, when you're talking about that, it, it brings up to my mind a criticism that I've heard of Tolkien where people will say, well, it's all just very simple and black and white and like the good guys are perfect and riding in on the white horse and the bad guys are these ugly people and, and all of that. And of course you have that symbology kind of playing out of light and dark and good and evil, but it it's the battle of good and evil in Tolkien is both on the sort of the broader stage, the world stage of, you know, between armies and powers and the dark Lord and the free peoples of the West. But it's also portraying that battle of good and evil in the human heart. You, you see right. characters like, uh, Boromir is yeah. probably the prime example, but um, maybe even more than that would be Gollum, yeah. um, where uh, you you are seeing that um, that spiritual battle. Um, mm -hmm. Our heroes are not just perfect caricatures. Um, Tolkien isn't naive about evil; far right. far from it. But he's portraying a universe in which um, in which good is fundamentally good and evil is fundamentally evil. These aren't just, um, you know, labels that we put on things in order to, to get power. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you look at, say, an example. So if you watch the Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings movies, mm -hmm. right? The, the one thing, there were two things that didn't make it in those movies. One was Tom Bombadil um, <laughs> because nobody knew what to do with it because nobody, I mean, there's whole websites and books <laughs> written about what Tom Bombadil, who he is and what it means. And no one's really sure. It's just you know, this. A whole other conversation, right? But the other, more importantly, is the scouring of the Shire at mm -hmm. the end, which, which in a lot of ways is a very significant. And some oh, yeah. people have argued that it may be, in, I don't want to say some sense, the point of the Lord of the Rings is that, is that in fighting evil, um, nothing isn't in a sense, not corrupted by it, but, but we're all affected by that. You know, if you see it, um, as a sort of, um, allegory for, you know, the British people fighting world war one or world war two, which or I wouldn't whatever. encourage you to see it that way. I though. wouldn't encourage you to see it that way. <laughs> although, although nothing in, in, in him is really allegorical, right? Cause he kind of despised the notion of allegory, but there's thematic things there. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that, that, that Frodo and Sam and the Shire can't, you know, they, 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 they can't engage without consequence and without mm -hmm. casualties and, and there are going, there's going to be collateral damage and, mm -hmm. and, and there's going to be a cost that's going to have to be paid to, to confront evil. And even things that look good can be, can be compromised. So yeah, I don't buy the, the, that it's a simplistic, you know, um, black, white thing. I just, I think anyone who says that hasn't, really read the books mm -hmm. or, or perhaps they're just seeing it through that lens of, uh, of that there is no true good and evil, but it's just power, which, which seems right. to, to be a more popular notion. You, you know, you said something there about, um, uh, 
you know, Norse literature, this, that. In my quest from middle school through college and graduate school, where I was like, how do I get to the sources? Like what, I mean, that was a huge thing for me. It's like, I loved this. So where did Tolkien get this and how do I read more stuff like this? So, I mean, I went down the whole path in college and grad school of, you know, reading medieval literature and everything else and studying it and mm. everything from, you know, the obvious like Beowulf to the maybe a little less obvious, like the Song of Roland and, you mm. know, and, and you start... Um, uh, you know, I took that whole, that whole class and Wagner's like ring cycle and everything else to try to get at the Norse mythology. And the thing is, when I went to those things going, oh, this is this must be now if I love Lord of the Rings, this must be like the pure form of it. But it's not because he took all of those source materials and then in a sense, filtered them through his Catholicism and transformed them. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the basic worldview that you have in Norse mythology is is that uh, in the end, there will be Ragnarok, even even the gods who, you know, aren't, God, aren't, God, aren't pure and good anyways. God or Damarong, right. you know, uh, in the uh, end. Yeah, and the heroes will fight this last stand, yeah, the losing, last, losing battle. The last, Odin, Odin mm-hmm. will limp. You know, yeah. to, to the last defense and, and the strong, stupid monsters will win in yeah. the end. And, it, and it's fatalism. And it is, as, as I think you said earlier, it's, it's the belief that the universe is fundamentally chaotic and without meaning. Um, but Tolkien's view, because he is a Christian, because he is a Catholic, is, is fundamentally different than that. Um, he, he would refer to fighting the long defeat, where we know that evil is in this world and that it's powerful and that it's fighting. Um, and we don't, um, expect to defeat it in this life, but we know that Christ has won the victory and, and ultimately, um, you know, no matter how dark things get on this side, that there will be, um, to use his term, the eucatastrophe at the right. end where, th- yeah. where things, things yeah. turn out right providentially. That's a great word. And we're going to, we're kind of getting to the end of the time here, mm-hmm. but, um, two things before we kind of wrap this, um, cause I'm so glad you mentioned that word. Um, so two things before the end here, one, I want you to explain the eucatastrophe mm-hmm. term and why that's significant and, and maybe why that is a way to sort of understand it. And maybe the second thing kind of closely related to this, why should somebody who has not read Lord of the Rings read it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, in uh, I believe it's on fairy stories. Uh, Tolkien is talking about you catastrophe as as, uh, as a key theme in in that kind of literature, um, and he has this this afterward almost an aside. But you can tell for him it's like actually the heart of the matter and like what he really most cares about. Um, and he talks about how. Um, in, in the history of the world, the incarnation is is the eucatastrophe. And, and in the history of the incarnation, the resurrection um, is the eucatastrophe. So it's this, this, this turning point, this almost beyond hope after things have gone as dark as, as it seems that they can be, um, things are turned around. Um, you, um, Greek, I believe, good and catastrophe, this, um, you know, sudden um, monumental thing that happens. Um, and it's not, um, like the, the temptation would be to compare it to like deus ex machina where, where you just kind of, um, appeal to, uh, to, to some outside power or you, the writer backs themselves into a hole and has to pull themselves out by, um, by means of a, of a kind of outside thing, something that's not organic to the story. Um, I, if I have it right, I think Tolkien would have seen it as, as both a surprising and, a, and an astonishing thing, but also something that arises organically out of the story, that in, in a sense, it's really the whole point of the story from the beginning, um, that God's incarnation and his His death and resurrection to save and redeem the world is, yes, it's astonishing. It seems to come out of nowhere, but also um, it it has been prepared for, and it's, it's an organic part of the world that God has made. And so the he, turning of the tide, right? Um, and and it's what, um, especially in in the real world, in in that context of the incarnation and the resurrection, it's it's what is the basis of our hope that things can get as dark as possible. But we know that that we have um, something to look forward to. That we have that eucatastrophe. That things will be made right. Um, and in the Lord of the Rings, spoiler alert: that's the destruction of of the ring and that you have the armies of the West, they're completely out, out manned. Um, it looks like they're going to, 
to perish. Um, you have Frodo, who has been compromised, has decided to take the ring, and then sort of out of the blue, the ring is the ring is destroyed because of this conflict between Gollum and, and Frodo, and because of that. Um, Sauron, the Dark Lord, can be defeated, and, and you can have this, this new era of peace um, without, without the menace coming out of Mordor um, in the story. So I, I think that is, is fundamental to the, the novel being underpinned by Christianity and by Catholicism, is that it's, it's ultimately about a view of history um, it, writ large, uh, about um, whether history is hurtling towards the abyss or whether history is um, might look like the long defeat now, but is headed towards redemption and is headed towards um, towards uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, some kind of consummation so that, mm -hmm. that things will be made right. Right. Yeah. Re yeah. It's, it's redemption. I mm -hmm. um, in the end that, that, yeah, that's a conversation for another day, another book. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but, but it is redemption and redemption is, is when something is in a sense fundamentally transformed in a way that all that was broken about it before is not obliterated or made, it doesn't go away, mm -hmm. but that the brokenness is woven into, um, mm -hmm. and made good. And, and so, you know, the, the, the perfect example of that, of course, is, is the, the risen Christ has scars, mm -hmm. um, that, that the uh, the suffering of the crucifixion is not is not uh, removed; it's transformed and right. redeemed and made meaningful. Yeah, and you have that in various ways with um, with the characters in the Lord of the Rings. You don't have one single Christ figure, but you have different characters who who um, kind of enact various um, aspects of of Christ's mission and Christ's person. Um, what made me think of that when you're saying that is is Frodo having destroyed the ring. Um, he continues to be aff affected by that and yeah. what, what he's suffered and the wounds that he's received. That's what we um, talk about the Sky and Sky Shire. Yeah. And, then, and nothing goes unscathed. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you look at, if you look at one of the questions about Lord of the Rings, it's always who's the protagonist. And there's all these arguments who the protagonist is and including in, in some ways, um, you know, the argument is, is Sam is the genuine protagonist of the Lord of the Rings, right? Or at least oh, he's the point of view character. Yeah, audience surrogate or that kind yeah, of thing. He's yeah, he's a sort of POV character. And in some sense, he's the every man who becomes witness to great events, but mm -hmm. he, he cannot go through this without being affected. Right. Well, yeah. And, and so Frodo... Um, making this great sacrifice of himself is is in some ways like Christ in his priest, priestly role of, of giving of himself. Um, Gandalf is is famously in sort of prophetic role where mm -hmm. he, he's um, tasked with proclaiming truth and sort of mm -hmm. get, calling people back yeah. to fighting against evil. Aragorn, of course, is the king. Um, right. and, and that is is a Christ Christ-like role yeah. and, and the, the final and, volume being called The Return of the King. And, which has nothing, so much and nothing will be right mm -hmm. uh, until the, the king uh, is, is, is restored, mm -hmm. you know, and that's one of the things like, you know, there's so many things that make it a Catholic novel, right? I mean, including uh, in Gondor, Gondor doesn't have a king, it has a steward. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's in a lot of ways people have said that it, it becomes, again, nothing's like an analogy uh, or an allegory, but, but it's reminiscent of the papacy. That, you know, the, the, in the throne room in Gondor, right, in Minas Tirith, there is the, the, the throne and on a small chair at the base, there's, you know, a small chair, uh, you mm -hmm. know, at, at the base of the steps, there's a small chair for the steward and the steward is there to hold it until the return of the king. Mm -hmm. And so there's all these reminiscences about, uh, uh, you know, so the, that Catholic, Catholic themes resonate through it. So anyway, we've, we've, this has been a longer <laughs> book club discussion. I thought it would be because, you know, I mean, it's like Lord of the Rings and some is like a gazillion pages and there's yeah, a bunch we yeah. talk about. Um, I'm going to give you the final word as a, as a, a Tolkien fan and everything else. Last word to the listeners about Lord of the Rings and whether they should read it if they have not. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a fan, so maybe I just sound biased, but I think that everyone should read the Lord of the Rings. Even if you, you're not um, particularly a fan of that genre, um, it's, not a, it's not simply about the genre, as we've been saying throughout this episode, it's it's also and and more fundamentally, I think about um, the the worldview and and the understanding of reality that that's shining through that, and and it's a it's a unique way of 
embodying that, of incarnating that in fiction. Because, of course, you can take all the same kinds of themes and write a realistic novel about it. But there's so much more that you can do and so many more evocative um, ways that you can... Uh, that you can get these themes across in a work of fiction and especially in a work of fiction that, that takes on mythological um, elements um, that you, you can't do if you're just writing about average ordinary people in the hmm. modern world doing average ordinary yeah. things. Um, and, and as you said before, um, that the novel being really anchored and grounded in, in truth and goodness and beauty, I think that's something that, that is for everyone and, and that everyone ought to experience. Right. Right. I don't know. What would you say? <laughs> uh, pretty much what you said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty what you said. I, I think how you, how you encounter and enter it, it, you know, reading the Lord of the Rings, you know, part of it is just that it, it was written, you know, uh, three quarters of a century ago. So in terms of, is it accessible literature for somebody who has been raised on, you know, you know, pop literature of the other 21st century, you know, it takes a little bit of effort. Sure. It and, takes patience. It's and, not written like your blockbuster novel. No, it isn't. Yeah. And it's, it's like, as some, as some people pointed out that if you had handed this to a publisher today, it had zero, it would have zero oh, chance yeah, no. of getting published as long. It's dense. It's got like a whole weird, long, you know, 50 page thing about Tom Bombadil <laughs> in the middle of it. It's a, you know, there's a lot about it that's not accessible. Um, and you know, what, what a lot of people do is going to assess it through, through movies. And now we have this, you know, Amazon thing coming up or whatever. And so I would say that, you know, that would be a whole other conversation is what do we think about the Peter Jackson movies? But what I would say is that, you know, if you're curious about the book, you should read the book and, um, and you should be, you know, cautious about the Amazon series. Let's <laughs> <laughs> put it lightly. That's right. Um, yeah, I would recommend reading The Hobbit first, um, just because it, The Hobbit is explicitly more of a children's novel. So it's more, accessible and also events in the hobbit are are directly relevant to the lord of the rings so you yeah. don't you don't have to read the hobbit in order to understand the lord of the rings um but i would definitely recommend it all right and it's a little bit of an in, it, easier entree all right thanks Corey. well i can't wait till our next book club discussion yes absolutely okay thanks bye Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com dot com.